Good morning. I'm Aya Wimala, and today is January the 14th. This is another post from Tennessee. I'm still here with my mom. I'll be going to the hospital as soon as I am with you today. And she is getting better. Yesterday she was better than the day before, so we're hoping she'll be able to get home, back to her place where she's more comfortable. Uh, maybe, maybe a few more days, we're not sure. So thanks for all your uh, support and your comments. And this is, uh, I'm, I realize more and more, this is what, if we're lucky, I guess if we're lucky, this is what we go through as we age and continue to live longer. Uh, this sickness and death and old age and uh, pain is all part of this this journey. So this is this is something we all share. So I want to read again, of course, in Wisdom is Bliss, and we were reading about mindfulness on uh, Tuesday. So, no, yesterday. <laughs> Today's Friday, and. We've worked through some of what he said about the four, the four foundations of mindfulness. So the la in the last of the four, he's taught the last are the mind objects. So I'm, I'm, if, you, if you didn't, you might want to listen to the one from yesterday if, uh, if you're not up with us. So this is still in the mindfulness chapter, but we're, we've worked with the mind objects, and I'm going to repeat this one uh, paragraph, and then we're getting into the Four Noble Truths, which is also part of the foundations of mindfulness. So this is the, this is the essence of the Buddha's teachings, again. By now, and this is as we're working to the fourth part of our mindfulness practice in life, by now we, are, we the patients are more and more detached from obsession with inner phenomena, our mind tending to feel meditatively disembodied in fact. So we've worked with the body, the feelings, the mind, and we're now working with all other uh, objects. So he leads us, the Buddha does as a teacher, so he leads us to develop a kind of subtle mental body made of the seven enlightenment components, mindful awareness itself, critical discernment, creativity, delight, calm, concentration, and equanimity. Insight and lucid wakefulness come about when using this scheme, and there is a sense of inner freedom and detachment that is even stronger than before. So these, we're getting into some of the rewards, right, as we work with our mind, but we're, we've, we know that we include the body, we've already gone through that part, so as we work through a lot of the, what's happening in our body, and uh, those, those uh, hindrances, and our personalities and how they how they might be getting in our way. Now we're into a more 
subtle mental body that we're working with. This last focus of your mindfulness is on things in the mind, your mind objects. The last of the list of things in your mind is the Four Noble Truths, or friendly facts. That's his term. Thus the Four Noble Truths are featured as the most important things in your mind. The Great Discourse is utterly amazing in the way Buddha leads his disciples through this. After all, his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree occurred when he himself became perfectly clear on these four noble truths, especially the third one, the noble truth of freedom from, cessation of, blowing away of suffering. And I read that yesterday. So so the Buddha leads us patients into the subtlest organization of the mind objects, that of the four noble truths or realities. These four things are possibilities for ordinary persons, but are realities for a noble, truly friendly person. I'll read that part again. These four things are possibilities for ordinary people, ordinary persons, but are realities for a noble, truly friendly person. The realities of suffering, its origination, its cessation, and the Eightfold Path leading to its, sensa- to its cessation. He brings the patients into lucid wakefulness of their diagnosis and prognosis. First comes suffering in all its detail, birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, distress, meeting the unloved, losing the loved, dissatisfaction. Those are all different uh, aspects of suffering. He then runs through the five aggregates again, our body, sensations, perceptions, thoughts, and consciousness. This time in brief as suffering processes. He directs us to focus on a list of agreeable and pleasurable things to impress on our awareness how craving for more and better always spoils these impermanent experiences because they do not last. They are the suffering of change. So, you know, the Buddha teaches us that the five aggregates are all sources of suffering. And the five aggregates, and he's talked about them in so many different aspects, but the five aggregates, the body, the sensations, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, the, our perceptions, the way we, the lens we view the world from, our thoughts, those are our mental formations, and consciousness. This time he describes them in this part of the four foundations of mindfulness. He defines, he defines them in brief as suffering processes. They all bring suffering. And then he gives the list of the things we can uh, think of, the agreeable and pleasurable things to impress on our awareness. So what he's teaching us is when we crave for more and better, I like this part of the sentence, 
He wants to, the, and he being Buddha, our teacher, he wants to impress on our awareness how craving for more and better always spoils these impermanent experiences because they do not last. They are the suffering of change. So when we want more, that craving that always uh, brings suffering to us is because when we're craving, we want more or we want the, um, uh, the better experience. We want it to be more, longer, better, stronger, and that ruins what the beauty of the, uh, maybe the brief, impermanent uh, pleasure. The pleasure isn't, there's nothing wrong with the pleasure. It's then our craving that we want it to be different or better or just more and more of it. Next, he turns to the origination of suffering, directing mindfulness to pinpoint craving for the the agreeable and pleasurable. And And again, he turns the focus onto the five aggregates. The mindful awareness of these originating processes of suffering, the five aggregates, becomes the insight that leads to their cessation, the subtlest level of freedom from suffering. The mindful awareness of the third noble truth opens the door to the reality of freedom from suffering. So when we see what's causing the suffering, then we know that there can be an end to it. Then comes the most interesting and even shocking guidance for the patient. The blowing away of suffering comes from the complete fading of the craving. And here's a quote from the Buddhist teachings. And what, monks, is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering? It is the complete fading away and extinction of this craving, its forsaking and abandonment liberation from it, detachment from it. And how does this craving come to be abandoned? How does its cessation come about? This leads to the biggest shock in the Buddha's guided meditation that helps the patient mendicants realize the reality of their freedom. The question really is, where is this freedom from suffering? Where is our Nibbana? And the startling answer is, And this, again, is a quote from the Sutta, the teaching. Wherever in the world there is anything agreeable and pleasurable, there its cessation comes about. So, he then goes into the same list of the pleasurable and the agreeable that he had guided our minds through in describing the noble truth of suffering, the first friendly fact. This time, however, he locates the cessation of the craving and the suffering right there in the same place where craving and suffering had been happening, precisely in the sights of the experience of what is pleasurable and agreeable. He concludes, and that, monks, is called the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. Why is this so surprising? And surprising, he's saying, go back to, go back to where the, uh, the, 
where the cessation of craving and the suffering go back to the same place where it has been happening in the sights of the experience. So why is this so surprising? Remember that this guided meditation, this sutta, this Buddha discourse is from the Pali, from the Buddha as heard by individual liberation-seeking persons who considered Nibbana as something other than samsara. Liberation is something apart from life. That's how they came to his teachings, thinking that liberation was something different from life itself. Yet the Buddha clearly states that this Nibbanic release is right here in the world, right in connection with experience. Craving turns such pleasant experiences into the suffering of change, into dissatisfaction. Yet detachment, freedom from craving, enjoys the very same realities that suffering found intolerable as if they indeed, in reality, are Nibbana. This subtlety forestalls the patient's tendency to associate Nibbana with an escape from experience, a state beyond, outside of the world of suffering. The lesson is, is that when you clutch the pleasurable and the agreeable, you stifle it by considering it insufficient, never enough, at which point it, ter- at which point it terminates and you are left miserable longing for more. When you let yourself go into the pleasurable and agreeable, letting it blow you away by not clutching at it, but rather by melting into it, it becomes the revelation of the deep nibbanic nature of reality. So it's only the clutching in the, this is not enough, this is not enough, uh, it's the same it's the same in physical things as well as relationships with people and everything i think this is an incredible paragraph so he's telling us that it's very subtle but the buddha was teaching those early students especially that nibbana is in this world it's all it's all how we're thinking we're not wanting to uh, be liberated from the world and go to a different place. That our liberation, basically, he's saying, liberation is within us. This, the same place that comes the suffering we create is where we can attain that liberation, that release. And it's just letting go. It's, it's, these words are just beautiful. The lesson is when, is that the lesson is that when you clutch the pleasurable and the when you clutch it, the pleasurable and the agreeable, you stifle it by considering it insufficient, never enough, at which point it terminates and you are left miserably longing for more. So when you let yourself go into the pleasurable and agreeable, letting it blow you away by not clutching at it, but rather by melting into it. It becomes a revelation of the deep nirvanic nature of reality. So that 
The reality is in nature itself. That's seeing things clearly. Finally, mindfulness is guided to focus on the fourth noble truth, the eightfold path of realism that we have been studying, which leads to the fading of craving and the gaining of nibbanic freedom from suffering. Though realists through, through, there's a typo in the book, that's the first one I've seen, through realistic view, realistic motivation, realistic speech, realistic evolution, realistic livelihood, realistic creativity, realistic mindfulness or remembering, and realistic concentration. To recap, realistic view is knowing the four truths, processes of causation of suffering, and cessation of suffering. That's number one. Number two, that motivation is non-violence, free generosity, and non-alienation. Speech is honesty, diplomacy, sweetness, and meaningfulness. Evolutionary action is non-killing, non-stealing, non-abuse of sexuality, Livelihood is ethical living. Creativity is clearing the mind of negativity and sustaining the positive mindfulness. And what he's calling creativity is, he calls it creative effort. So that's uh, that's a realistic effort. But he calls it creativity, which I think is is a beautiful way of expressing it. It's so that creativity, that effort, is clearing the mind of negativity and sustaining the positive. And then mindfulness is lucid waking, awareness of what is, experiencing it fully without craving and worrying. And realistic concentration is moving into expanded embodiment through moving the mind up through the divine abodes of immense love, compassion, joy, and equanimity, the four contemplations that open for the patients their own inner heavenly nature, which then can manifest right here on earth too. I will return to the to the eighth of these in the next chapter. So that we're reading his chapter on... Uh, Realistic mindfulness, and so realistic samadhi or concentration is the eighth, and that's the next chapter. The Buddha concludes this teaching, this guided therapeutic meditation, by telling the patients that they can attain the nirvanic cessation of freedom from suffering in either seven years or even seven days. That is really encouraging, but though we must remember he is addressing mendicants, that is, those dropouts from the household life who are given free lunch by the rich and tolerant Indian society to be on permanent retreat, to just focus on learning, thinking, and realizing lucid waking mindfulness all the time, except for eating, sleeping, and bathroom functions. We all tend to be a bit more distracted, what with multitasking, working, taking care of family, and diverting ourselves all too easily. So maybe we need something more like 49 days. 
In another discourse in the universal vehicle context, the Bodhisattva Manjushri leads a divine student through a more explicitly transcending version of the four focuses of mindfulness. And I think we don't have time to read that, but we can uh, read that, and that will that will end our discussion on realis- realistic mindfulness. So I think it's really important to remember that the suffering comes from the same place that the that our uh, contentment and happiness come from. So we're we're always coming back, working on ourselves. It's all there. So why don't we sit together with the rest of our time? I hope you, if you have any questions, please ask any questions you have, and we can talk about those too. Um, if you think of some questions, just you know, add them to the to the comments. And if if I don't catch them while I'm uh, talking, then I'll look at them and talk about them next day. Because this is uh, his writing is very, I think, very comprehensible. He's very uh, he he really can put a lot into each sentence, and uh, it some of it may be so new to you that it's not. If you've read the suttas and have more experience with the suttas, it's it's obviously going to be easier to kind of follow along, right? So, um, oh, I'm going to show Mary Jane. The here's the cover, but it's backwards. I know. It's Wisdom is Bliss, and it's by Robert Thurman. And it's by Hay House Publishers. And someone uh, told us that there is a, an audio book. So it's a, a newer book. It's a new book. I think it was published very recently, maybe in 21. And so... 2021, so it's a new book. Um, Let's sit together for a while. We don't have a lot of time, but we can certainly take about five or ten minutes. And then when we finish today, when our time together is up, remember, I always like to encourage you, if you can, just continue sitting for a while. And uh, just being being comfortable and relaxed and just being, staying within and uh, just being with yourself and being, just experiencing the calm mind. (laughs) Yes, I'm a Capricorn, Eva. (laughs) I think you have a birthday. Did you just have one? Or our birthdays are very close, I know. (laughs) We're kind of, we're solid, aren't we? (laughs) Grounded. We have the capability of being (laughs) well-grounded. We're Earth. So just let your body be the focus. So... If you want to do a body scan to help you really, you know, we're always working with this body. And just like 
he says, and the Buddha said, we always, we come back to this body. We come back to the body to find the release of suffering. It's not somewhere outside of us. Be aware of the body breathing. And let's just practice staying with the breath, counting up to 10. Each breath, one breath is in and out. And just then in your head, just repeat one and count up to 10 as you breathe. Let it be your natural breath. But if you're sitting up, if you're sitting and you've rolled your shoulders back and you're allowing your lungs to have space, you're not slouched over, you can be walking or standing or sitting or on your back but try to just make sure your lungs have maximum space. And that natural breath will get a little bit deeper. That's why it's good to feel it in your belly. The reason we count to 10 is to give us a big clue when we've become distracted from the breath, we lose count. And recognizing the distraction is the point of the practice. We recognize how our mind becomes distracted, we start to learn what causes more distraction. Then we know what we can work with.
Don't worry if you keep getting distracted and have to start over at one. That's good. You're recognizing. You're recognizing that monkey mind we all have at times. Maybe we all have most of the time. But recognizing it is certainly the most important step in uh, working with it. Now, if you can keep sitting, even for a few more minutes, just stay with your breath. Everything else can wait. The thoughts will, if you need to remember something, you can remember it. But carve this time out when you sit to be time just for you, not to try to give your meditation time to other people, take care of yourself. And we can share the merit of our practice May everything today that we do and say and think not only be done for our own benefit, but for the benefit of all living beings. And we know that when we take care of ourselves, we are taking care of others. So... When your heart is in the right place, when your heart is open, then you're not being selfish when you take care of yourself. You have everyone else in mind. Thank you for so many. I had so many birthday wishes from many of you this morning. And thank you for thinking about my mom. And I'm off to be with her and spend my birthday with her. So... May peace and love be with all of you, and may everyone here and everyone in our lives and all beings be well, free from suffering and its causes, and be happy. And may peace begin with all of us. Thank you.